From the boardroom to the locker room, sport captures the imagination like little else. In this podcast, we talk to the men and women who make the big decisions and those who make the big plays to find out where sport is and importantly, where it's going. But we do so through the only eyes that matter, those of the fan. about to listen to our new show the groundsman conversations which is brought to you by sports digita sports digita is a cloud-based presentation platform for rights holders agencies and brands that brings your story to life within immersive exciting easy to create proposals and presentations used by more than 50 percent of teams in the top leagues in the u.s sports digita's technology enables partners to ditch powerpoint and keynote and create powerful presentations of their own that provide tracking analytics to help you understand the performance of your prospecting cutting through the crowded marketplace to win business. So go to sportsdigital.com to book your demo. Welcome, everybody, to another edition of The Groundsman. Joining me, as always, the two fellow slackers themselves, Giles Morgan and Roger Mitchell-Giles. How are you, my friend? I'm good, Grant. All middle of the World Cup now. Even I'm getting interested in the football, and that is rare. So, um, yeah, it's all becoming together, and uh, looking forward to seeing how these group stages all pan out. Yo, by the time this goes out, Giles, um, both oh, yeah, you yeah, yeah, and yeah. I haven't Grant... introduced you yet. I haven't introduced you yet. <laughs> this is this is this is, this is this, there's an etiquette to these things, Mitchell. Okay, you all wait, right. You wait until you're introduced before you start cackling on like some demented Braveheart okay. impressionist. Okay. Also joining us, Roger Mitchell. Hi, mate. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Uh, and I was listening to Giles, who uh, we need to note by the time this gets published both uh, his team and, and, and probably yours as well, Grant, will no longer be in the tournament. So uh, just for, just for the know, listeners. Rog, I have to say, I have to say, most people, bitterness doesn't suit them, but Scottish football supporters, it kind of does. <laughs> you, you know I'm not like that. I'm just wanting to be editorially correct. And, Rog, you know, I've, listen, had, a, I've had a good year on calls this year. You'll always have 78, mate, don't you worry. You'll always have that goal <laughs> Archie Gamble scored against uh, Holland in 1978. Don't worry. Well, well we do have, uh, similar with Wales now, the debacle against Iran. That was our second game that year that we only ah. got a draw. And that wasn't <laughs> yes. the Iran that Wales played. It's a well, crazy I did, world. I did read somewhere that uh, Gareth Bale has decided to, uh, I think the word was, ease up on the amount of golf he's playing, which is which is which must be delightful for the Welsh team that the star players decided to cut back on the amount of golf he plays in Doha. So, jolly good, Charles. You remember the shout now? Yeah, well, we'll see. Oh, okay. A bit grumpy. All right. Anyway, <laughs> chaps, uh, before we bring on our guest, who I've been looking forward to for a while now to speak to, uh, what's caught your eye this week? Jilo, what are you? Uh, what have you been looking at? Well, it's a little while ago now, but I was uh, lucky enough to go to the final um, England international at Twickenham um, Sunday before last, which was against um, South Africa. Um, And I've been going to rugby for a a long, long time, all my life. Very lucky to to, to go to Cardiff and Twickenham in particular. It was abysmal and abysmal on so many levels. And to, I mean, great if you're South African, I suppose, but I'm not. So it was, as a performance from the most, well, the richest rugby union in the world, which is England, with the, some fantastic players, to watch 82,000 people shiver in abject misery at dire performance with ticket prices around 150 quid a go, right? So oh, Jesus. Sporters Entertainment with a £6.50 pint where you don't even get a pound back anymore for recycling the cup, which was quite a good initiative back in the day, uh, to watch Dross was just... I, I, I was so excited to go. It was just before my wedding. So it was a little bit of a stag-type occasion. So the only way I could make it palatable was after the game, which was very poor... Um, getting stuck into the car park, a lot of sausage rolls, beer, red wine, and repeat. Um, got on the train, missed all my stations, <laughs> and uh, sort of got home about two in the morning feeling slightly sorry for myself. And that was my highlight. Thank you. Excellent. Missing the stations was linked to the red wine. Is there correlation there? No, well, no, I may have been the Jaeger bombs right at the end, which I think were the, were the real problem. <laughs> we were just mixing everything up. I, I behaved as if I was 27 and... Uh, very good fun it was too. 
Giles, when you, whether you're 27 or 27. Excellent. Uh, the answer to, why don't we just have a couple of Jaeger ones before we call it a night, is always should be no. You know that, right? <laughs> I do. It was such an error. And, and the awful thing is that I was asleep on the train, obviously, and you have that kind of dribble, dribble slump thing going on as well. It was just, anyway. Uh, just, yes. just a, no, 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 no story begins... So we had a Jaeger bomb and ends happily ever after. So anyway, <laughs> you made it. You made it out alive. Rog, what's, uh, apart from rugby, what's been floating your boat? No, actually, I was going to ask Giles about rugby. I know it's um, by the time this goes out, a few days that have passed. But um, Dory Weir is still um, in the middle of uh, the, the the news cycle, as, as it were. And, and you know, I, I, I want to ask Giles what his memories were because he different to you and I, Grant, has been in the middle of these tours. He's been on tour. He's been a protagonist. Um, what can you contribute to the memory of Doddy, Giles? Well, not much that many have said. I mean, Doddy was a, a larger-than-life character in every way. He was six foot seven, which made him very physically imposing. But he always was laughing, always smiling. He was just the greatest of company and I got to know him in the early 90s when I was working running the famous grouse whiskey sponsorship which was not a hardship as a as a job let me tell you and uh, I used to have to run around with bottles of scotch doing photo calls and sort of opportunities with marketing with the players and and Doddy was definitely a practical joker and I was trying desperately to uh, set some sort of um, photo call up where clearly the bottle of whiskey was going to be the hero um, on these various uh, photos (laughs) and every time I turned around the the bottles had disappeared and I couldn't figure out what it was and Doddy of course was just being Doddy and hiding them in his kit bag and I went through about an hour of just not understanding what was going and there was just this look of this giant of a man who was the greatest company. And what I do remember him most of all is that he was very generous with his time, particularly to junior players as he became a senior senior guy. He was a proper gentleman, uh, a borders farmer, a very talented equestrian guy as well. Actually, get him onto horses was his real, real passion as well. And... Um, one of those occasions you can say it was a real privilege to have, to have known someone and what he's done for MND in terms of raising awareness in the five or six years since he was diagnosed, not just to battle on as he and Rob Burrows have done, um, raising awareness, doing all sorts they can for charity, but with unfailing good humour and just getting on with it and Anybody who wants to be inspired by the shit that can come your way, then Doddy Weir, I think, um, absolutely uh, was the the absolute expression of that. Fantastic. Giles, last week, Roger and I talked a little bit about The 100 and this, what I think is a quite frankly staggering bid um, of $400 million. Um, What's your thoughts on that? Well, it just shows it's another expression of... um, the investment coming into sport from all sorts of different walks of life, of opportunities where people can see the potential to making money. Um, I'm not a big fan of the 100, um, really because of uh, that 2020 already exists, and I think we've discussed that in previous shows. And I never quite could see the need for another format, another short format, which is very similar to another format, and it can be confusing enough. However, if the investment comes in and it's big enough, this may become a challenge to 2020. So I'm interested um, in how the 100 fares. I think with Tom Harrison having left ECB and there's, a, there's new, new reins at the top, it'll be very interesting to see how the counties, in particular in England, um, adopt exactly. the, the, the new man in. Um, is very much a counties guy. He's very much supportive of the counties and, and the state, more of the status quo. Um, Tom, I think, was someone who was a bit more revolutionary. So, again, probably it, it, the short answer is a bit more shit fighting and fighting to come. I suspect as the committees rage and people try and figure out which way is which way is up. I'm hoping, however, the summer of 2023 will be remembered for a memorable Ashes. Um, series of test match cricket um, which I think the game urgently needs is a really good injection of just proper cricket proper crowds where people understand it to help level things out so we'll we'll, we'll see how how that one pans out um, I remain a little bit uh, scratchy bumming on the fence on that one 
No, I was just going to ask Charles about the 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 amount being paid for it. I just thought was a real stretch. It's tough for me to see how you make that kind of money work for you and make a decent return on it. But I mean, maybe I'm missing something. What what, what were your thoughts on the price they paid for it? Well, I just think there's so much overinflation in quite a lot of properties and sport that I'm. I think sometimes the ROI is. I mean, one the media will get in a frenzy about how much something is is really worth and and the price is being really put down. I agree with you. I think it's it is hugely overvalued, and and I don't know how you'd make a return on quite a lot of sports. Not until a lot of sports get their own act together of figuring out how to make money out of fans and how to commercialise themselves properly rather than wringing their hands and go toadying up to media and to sponsors again asking for the cheque to try and make things whole again. So a lot's got to change in the in the sports model, which we talk but about Can I ask you, Giles, to, to try and answer your question and Grant's question as well? Um, the teams of the 100, do they belong to the counties? No, I don't, well, uh, I'm going to have, I don't think so. Okay, so um, if they don't, then is the, the the investment case not the fact that you're getting into Topco and when you sell off the franchises, as in the IPL, I need to say IPL because I pronounce it the Italian way, EPL, uh, the IPL, um, you'll get most of that 400 back. Uh, yes, but by being uh, divided up. Just selling off the franchises yeah, yeah, to yeah, third yeah. parties, you know, you'll, you'll reduce your, your, your net investment amount. The, the reason I was asking the question is that doesn't count if it's going to to the counties. Uh, I, I think this is a very interesting story. You did mention about um, Tom Harrison. I, I did as well last week in that um, the counties didn't like him, as you said. He, whichever way you cut it, has put an asset of half a billion into English county cricket. He probably won't get any thanks for that. And, um, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the counties do now. Uh, Somebody can maybe help us about who actually owns these hundred franchises. Is it the ECB on their own or is it directly with the counties? I don't know, but um, I think that's how you try and justify the price by thinking that somebody external will buy these franchises one day. Yeah, and it would have to be on that Topco model, as you say, otherwise it makes no sense. And my, my suspicion is there were other counties who didn't get uh, into the 100. I, they're not, it's not a county format. It's more done on region and um, on, on geographic locations. So, yeah, it's, I mean, gosh... You look at English cricket right now; it's um, as as disrupted as as the game of golf, which I know we'll talk about shortly. Because there's all sorts of things flying around, and at the same time, I always feel that sometimes the fan is not always the one that's consulted on all of this. Um, I, I wrote a post recently about um, how important it is that the fan is, and it, it's the essence of this podcast, is the most important constituent part. And I'm not sure that all of these uh, governing bodies spend a lot of time talking to the fans about what they really want. Yeah, I saw that post, Giles. Um, it really pissed me off, actually. Oh, good. It, it really pissed me off because it got massive, massive <laughs> engagement. And I thought, that bugger, that's not the way the world's meant to work. <laughs> <laughs> but not only that, this, what's even better about that is I was, before the said uh, uh, train trip being delayed, I was standing at the Cabbage Patch, which is a famous pub near Twickenham Station, uh, and I decided to go in for a pint, and my mate who I was going to meet was late. So I wrote that post on the hoof, a couple of pints of London Pride in, and it's probably one of, the most, one of the most uh, uh, sort of viewed posts I've written, when I, actually I'm not entirely sure I was sober. Excellent. Well, there's a theme emerging here, Giles. Well, listen, um, we have a guest waiting to join us, Giles, so why don't you... Um, Clue the listeners in as to who we're about to be chatting to. Well, all year, inevitably, uh, sport business podcasts and us in particular have talked about live golf and what's going on in the world of golf. And and how could we not? It's been the Kerry Packer time for for golf and how. So we thought it would be brilliant uh, this week to be joined on the groundsman by the BBC golf correspondent, Ian Carter, who is one of the most respected sports journalists and broadcasters in the field. Um, And like Mike Dixon before. He's a proper journalist. He's been around. He's been trained. He joined the BBC and local radio in 1988 before moving to the World Service in the 90s. 
And then he moved to Five Live, which for those who are not in the in the UK is is one of the BBC Sports. Five Live is one of our, our major sports channels. And he became the tennis correspondent for five years before taking over golf in 2003, which is what he's been doing ever since. And I got to know him. He memorably had to interview me uh, in 2007 um, when Tiger Woods got knocked out of the uh, world match play and the first round in his first and only appearance in the world match play, making it comfortably the most expensive professional round of golf in history. And he asked me <laughs> if, if the sponsor HSBC was disappointed, uh, to which I, of course, said no, not at all. It was all about golf being the winner and you, it was about the best player. And I could just hear in my headphones just, what a load of bullshit. Anyway, that's an aside. Uh, Ian has also covered Test Match Cricket, Formula One, uh, International Rugby and Five Olympics. And I didn't know this. He'd re- he's written four book, books on golf, including... Um, the year celebration of the 150th Open. He is absolutely part and parcel of the golf establishment in terms of one of the, the media pack who reports on the game. He writes a lot on social media and also on the BBC um, digital platforms. So he will have a lot of views on Liv. And I'm really, I haven't had this conversation with him for a while about what he thinks is going on in the professional game of golf. He's also a handy golfer, so might make a good uh, sparring partner for you, Grant, in, 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 in months to come. And he's also a passionate Leicester City and Leicester Tigers fan. Marvellous. Ian Carter, a very warm welcome to the Groundsman Conversations. Super to have you on the show. Hello, guys. Thank you very much for having me. It's a great pleasure to be here. We hear, well, those of us who live in the uh, in the UK hear your voice a lot, particularly those of, of us who are interested in Ian Carter and golf. And you always have a view and, and you've been doing it for, gosh, nearly 20 years, um, bringing us both live moments on Five Live of moments like the Open Championship or the Ryder Cup. And you always manage to convey the enthusiasm of the drama. But Tell me a little bit about you, Ian. I mean, you have one of the best jobs in the world. You get to follow one of the big global sports. You get to travel to exotic locations um, all over the world. Why did you get into sports journalism? How did it happen? And, and, and was it was this vocational? Um, I, I think to a, to a large degree, yes. I, I, I think like lots of teenagers, didn't really have a clue what I was going to do with my my professional life. Um, you know, as I was sort of limping through A levels, but the one thing that I was really interested in was was the radio. I loved listening to it. Um, you know, the glory days of Radio One. I actually wanted to be a DJ. That was that was basically that was basically it. Um, and I, I'm, I'm, I was I was doing an accountancy course uh, of all things, and which wasn't the brightest thing to be doing because I'm absolutely hopeless at mathematics um and on on a whim i i got on a bus uh, i come from leicester i got on the bus went into radio leicester and asked them if they had any uh part-time jobs and they didn't as such but they had a youth program they invited me in to have a look at that and honestly giles from the moment i sat in that studio i knew that that was the area that i wanted to to work in and from there, I got myself qualified as a as a journalist um, in in newspapers. I did a course in Sheffield, worked as an agency reporter. I'd work sort of Monday to Friday in the Crown Courts and the Coroner's Courts and the Magistrates. And then on the Saturday, we'd be at football matches either in Leicester or Nottingham. Um, and from there, I, I I got a job in independent radio in Nottingham and then there uh, joined, joined BBC as their producer Radio Leicester, which... You know, you talk about golf being the dream job. Actually, the three years that I did as the sports producer at BBC Radio Leicester was the the ultimate dream job. Uh, unfortunately, um, Leicester City were pretty useless at the time. Leicester Tigers weren't having one of their golden periods, but even so, just um, just doing that as a as a young lad who who loved uh, Leicester sport was just just amazing. And do you think to be a, a sports journalist, this might sound like an idiotic question, but do you think that passion for sport um, is really, really important as a as a sports correspondent, that you really got to just love the beat? Yeah, I th- I, I, it certainly helps. I, and I think I think it's I think it's really important. I think it's also important not to not to overly uh, love it and and to be doing it for the reasons of, of you know being at all these amazing occasions or whatever it, it it might be i think you have to do it 
very much with your audience in mind and and to be able to take a step back and make some kind of analysis of of what is going on here and not be a fan in the press box i think that's just a, a really important aspect to the job and you do have to have that that separation um and i, I you know in some cases you know some might say it's a, a, a certain cynicism but you however you term it you you've got to have it um to be able to serve your audience and that's the the most important thing and there is a separation between being being a fan and being a journalist uh, ian let me ask you a question that that to me seems um fairly obvious but but uh i'm i'm dying to hear your answer to it and that is when, when you talk about the passion in sports and then the kind of the, the 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 ability to be dispassionate as a journalist and try and report on something not as you wish it to be, um, but how how it actually happened. Talk us through um, Leicester's Premiership title because that must have been just an absolutely unbelievable time to be a sports fan uh, and a journalist. And so to talk us through because we we all lived that that kind of fairy tale story as sports fans. Um, but very few of us, <laughs> sorry to say it, got yeah. a chance to actually live it as Leicester City fans. Yeah, and I, I was lucky enough to to live it as a Leicester City fan. And you know, right. um, I'm just so thrilled that you've you've got me on to redress the balance, having had Westwood on in his Forest days <laughs> um, just just a couple of weeks ago. So um, yeah, look, look, that was that was incredible. Um, and and for me, the the absolute delight of being a a Leicester City football fan is that I have no working capacity in football. I might do the odd football match um, here and there, an FA Cup tie or something like that, but I don't know anybody in football really. So these people can be my heroes. Jamie Vardy can be my hero, um, you know, and... And so, following that, and um, you know, I live I live uh, in in Surrey, but I'm a season ticket holder. I travel up every match that I can get to, and I do so with with my son, um, who is Surrey born and bred, but a massive Leicester City fan. And the fact that we were able to enjoy that extraordinary season, the season that you know no one could have predicted. Um and you know, I haven't you know, using the word extraordinary is just not enough, is it? It was just the ultimate sporting fairy tale. And for it to be my little club was I you know, I still can't believe it. It's um it's amazing. Yeah, you know, we're 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 speaking today on the anniversary of Jamie Vardy equaling the uh, record number of goals in consecutive matches, and yeah, you know, my social media has been full of that goal. And I could tell you that every move of it, I've seen it so many times. But you just look at it and you watch it and you play, you just have a massive smile on your face. Um, and it's what it's you know we're we're all sports lovers on this pod, and it's things like that that make love sport and um and yeah you you can't be you, you sometimes you you can't be cynical can you you've got you've got to just go with the romance of it all and, and as i say for it for it to be leicester city from my point of view is just amazing ian you said we're all sports fans um in this podcast i'm probably the one that comes across as mr grumpy uh mr angry <laughs> from um Pearly, I think that was the thing going back to the radio days. Um, that was all super romantic, what you said there. But about five months later, the man that delivered that for your club was sacked. Is that not the reality of the sport that we are dealing with now and, and that we're going to probably discuss a little bit later when we get into golf? Uh, surely the days of old romantics are dead and buried. Well, when you're heading for relegation uh, the year after winning the, the, the championship, um, then you you get the heave ho. So that's the that's the reality of it. And they managed to turn the series the, the season the season around. It was it was really interesting um, with with Claudio Ranieri. I mean, what an extraordinary job he did in that season. And then he changed the tactics in the in the season afterwards, and we were no longer that attacking counter-attacking side. We no longer had N'Golo Kante. Um, and Riyad Mahrez was suddenly not the the figure that he uh, was the season before because he wanted to get out as as well. 
and something had to change. And you're right, it's, you know, for all the romance that it's a business and there was no way that Leicester City could afford to be relegated. And that was that was what was going to happen. And I, I speak as someone who rolled their eyes, the moment was captured on social media, who rolled their eyes when Claudio Ranieri was, was appointed. Uh, what a job he did. Um, but, you know, things things move on. And, and as much as Ranieri is revered by the Leicester fans, I don't think there are too many that argued with the decision when it was taken. Well, uh, I think that says everything about um, the glorious sports fandom, doesn't it? Uh, in my world, well, of course. somebody that does that, um, even if he takes you down, uh, on the day he takes you down, you still say, thank you, Claudio, for giving me the best year of my life. I don't care we're in the championship. He was still in the Champions League, I think, when he was sacked. I, I may be wrong on that, but I think he was still... No, you're right. No, you're right. Yeah. You know, they so were, were still um, in the, I, I'm yeah. sorry. There's there's no excuses for that club. And if you say the fandom was all wanting him to go, there's no excuses for the no, fandom I, either. No, they weren't. They weren't wanting him to go, but they, uh, but they didn't argue with the decision. There was no, there were no kind of Ranieri out ch- kind of chance or anything like that. It was just a cold-hearted business decision that was that was taken. Um, but you know, when you saw the reaction um, when uh, Kunvichai sadly died in the helicopter crash, and um, Claudio Ranieri came back and walked around the, the ground in, in tribute to, to him when he came back as the, the Watford uh, manager and the, the songs of praise for Claudio Ranieri there, that showed how much he was still revered by the Leicester fans and, and the gratitude that they, that they felt. But equally, um, there was no way you could afford to get relegated after, after winning the league and spending, spending the money that they had to to try and maintain the position in the league and the money wasn't spent particularly well and they were in trouble so they had to do something that's sport that's professional sport Ian in the in the um, intro to introducing you to the show and um, also telling um, the listeners the story about you interviewing me about uh, Tiger Woods uh, at Wentworth which (laughs) remains one of my very happiest memories of having to lie very unconvincingly in front of quite a large audience of listeners um, when when Tiger (laughs) crashed out. Um, You've been the golf correspondent for the BBC since 2003 and you have been part and parcel of the the experience for many British fans about golf. Can you explain or share with us uh, the last 12 months? I mean, you could never have imagined that you would be writing about so much schism and about so much fallout of what's happened in the game of golf, which presumably for journalists is manna from heaven. It gives you something really to write about and really to get stuck into. But at the same time, you and I have been lucky enough to, to go to tournaments all over the world. We saw great growth in the golf in, say, places like China and other places. And now it's all change. Just give us yeah. some idea of what it's like to be a correspondent of a sport that at the moment in the men's game certainly is in nuclear meltdown. Yeah, it's been it's been fascinating, Giles. It's been um, something that I don't think we could really have anticipated other than, you know, so, un, until probably two years ago when we were starting to get the rumblings of the Premier Golf League. Um, and, you know, that, there's always been that, that feeling that golf could be done differently um, and could be, there, there could be an, another way of, of going about it. But then, of course, um, Liv emerged, Greg Norman emerged, the Saudi Arabian backing emerged, and, and, and suddenly we had a new tour on, uh, uh, arrive. And um, I'll never forget that, that week at, at Centurion. Um, it was the, the point at which CBS rang and said, can you come on? And I had never been so busy my my uh computer i was i was on every bbc outlet going um and the 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 way that the the story gathered momentum and the amount of money that was involved and you know as well as i do giles that the golf is a sport where yes there have been disagreements in in the past a lot of them 
but very few of them spill into the public domain. Golf does, has always done an amazing job of, of, of having those discussions in the background and then presenting United Front. And now we're just having schisms. We're having rows left, right and centre, players emboldened to say what they feel. And from a journalistic point of view, that's been brilliant. You know, we've, you know, whether it's been Greg Norman or Rory McIlroy or John Rahm, you know, all of these people, even Tiger Woods, who always avoided saying anything controversial, has put his head above the, the parapet. And from a journalistic point of view, that's fantastic. Um, so it's been it's been fascinating to cover. And what are your personal views on this? I mean, you, you obviously have been covering the beat. You've got the four majors. You've got um, the women's game growing um, and it has been growing well over the last decade or so properly in the LPGA in particular has re- it felt you know with the Olympics as well that golf was on a pretty good trajectory um you had um things like top golf helping to bring a helping to bring a, a younger audience maybe of participants and yet it seemed to be and I think I can now say this sort of five years after my HSBC adventure you had a lot of blazers a lot of crests a lot of branded ties all sitting there, slightly pleased with themselves, slightly pleased that Tiger Woods had come into their orbit in around about 1998 and made the golf truly global and very, very rich with some of the greatest, biggest sponsors from financial services coming in, which is always an indicator of where the real money is in terms of demographic. And it was as if they were all stuck in the, in the headlights and couldn't see that you have a, a plunging... Oh, you have a demographic of uh, of fans that's getting older and older, not being replaced. You're not seeing any real innovation. And suddenly it was meltdown. And then everybody started to get knives and start stabbing each other left, right and centre. And to the outsider, of which I now am, not part of the circus, it looked very unseemly and completely chaotic. Mm, I'm not sure. I'm not... I, I know where you're coming from a, a little bit there, Giles, but I'm, I'm not sure I agree with all of that. I think that, um, you, I, I think that the, the established tours and organizations like the RNA have, uh, have modernized quietly and efficiently going forward. Um, now, as I said before, there, and we've had these conversations about, whether golf could be sexier, could be marketed more in a in a more sexy way. Is 72 holes stroke play the, the, the way to go? And I've certainly, you know, wondered about that. And as I keep saying, we've had those conversations, haven't we, Giles? But um, I think that if you look at the arrival of Keith Pelly at the, at the European Tour, now known as the DP World Tour, and look at some of the innovations that he tried to bring in the golf sixes we we had we've had uh, sh- shot clocks we've had uh, the we've had various formats that that have come in there jay monahan is a fairly conservative figure but nowhere near as conservative as his predecessor tim fincham um and he's they, you know between them the pj tour have done massive deals with the leading American broadcasters to secure the tour there. And you have the RNA um, who have brought in things like the Women in Golf Charter and various other initiatives that have run through the sport that have quietly gone about modernizing the game. And I think that they do deserve credit in that respect because it is a very conservative, traditional game. And you know, bringing golf into the Olympics has been an enormous step. Um, and you, know, you can just suddenly go through and tick off areas of progression. And then Liv have come in and they've prevent, pre- presented a, a different way of going about things. And where is where is the chaos? The, the only chaos is that, that certain players have gone and others have stayed. And now there is a massive argument over which is the better way to go. And that argument still has a lot to run, but I'm not sure where it's, where it's going to end. Um, So, you know, that's kind of where I stand on it. And people say to me, what do I, what do I think of it? Well, 
I, I think it's very interesting to see how the sport is developing. And I, I, and I am sitting on the fence and I have to sit on the fence and I have to watch and see how it, how it, how, how it progresses. Um, so that's, so you're not going to get a massive opinion from me on this um, because I, I, I'm not sure what, what the answer is to that question. Ian, um, I, uh, I, I too don't like to make this about personalities. I think sadly the reaction to live has been very much about Greg and very much about disloyal players, which I think has been nothing other than just deflection to the fact, you know, you said earlier and nobody uh, apart from two years ago could have seen this coming. I mean, what data points do you need when you're the age of your average fan has gone up about 30 years and in, in probably the same time? Um, this is a dying sport, Ian. Uh, whichever way you want to, you want to like sugarcoat that. If there's a cold snap, gold, uh, golf is going to lose a significant percentage of its fans. There is no, um, as I can see, no option for baby steps, little innovation that the ones that you were listing earlier, that's that's uh, shuffling deck chairs on the Titanic. Is that not a fair line, Ian? I, I, no, I don't think so. I think that, um, that the sport has preserved, listen, it's, it's preserved its, its sponsors. It's come through COVID. It's attracted new people. Um, to to the sport, it's never had bigger television deals. Um, now you can talk about, you know, where the DP World Tour sits now compared with how it once sat, but look at it globally, and golf has attracted more and more money, um, one one way or another. I don't think it's a dying sport at all. I think that it's, I think it, we've never had a, a younger. Uh, top 10 in the men's game or the women's game. It's got massive potential in in terms of um, bringing together the men's and women's game. And I think that's where it's missing a, a, a massive trick. It's obviously a very attractive sport to the Saudis. That's why they're investing uh, hugely in it. And they see potential for a business return on it as well. But I, I think that I, I wonder what what metrics to you suggest that this is a Titanic heading for the heading average for a, age of the fan. A, average age of the fan. Um, in ten years, you don't have an audience. But it's an aging it's an aging population anyway, and I would suggest that the average age of the fan is probably down to the fact that it's on, you know, all day in the daytime, and the only people that can see it are people who are who are that age. Uh, you know, in that that sort of retirement age bracket. But what I would say is that if you go to the Open, that was a that was an all ticket sellout. Has been for the last last couple of years. The BMW PGA Championship at Wentworth was a complete sellout. I've just come back from Dubai, where the DP World Tour Championship, which had a very young age demographic watching that, albeit an expat communities that that had a complete sellout crowd over over the weekend biggest crowds that i've ever seen before so you know i i do think that the listen golf is a niche sport um compared with with football potentially rugby and cricket and those those massive uh, sports and in in america it has to sit in the back seat but it's still um it's still bringing in huge crowds. The majors are all sold out. Um, look at the Made in Denmark tournament, something like that. Have a look at the crowds that, that are there. I think that there is a trope that goes around that says, oh, golf is dying. But actually, when you're in that, it, when you're in the sport and you look around it, it's doing pretty well. Yeah, I think the key phrase there is, is when you're in the sport. I think um, I sense that's a little bit of an echo chamber. I think if you did any kind of market research on anybody under 20, 21, and how they were approaching or being attracted by the sport of golf beyond top golf, which is a leisure activity, it's not the sport of golf as you intend it, I, I think those those figures would be dramatic. Well, I, I I don't know. I mean, I, I, show show me them. I mean, I, you know what I'm. But that's the point. They is, don't do them. They, they don't do. It. You heard Lee say no, no, that. There's but, no. No, there's no people, strategy but, for Gen Z. But 
but people are but but it's being it, it that the, the fact that top golf is expanding all the time and, and it's a huge is a huge success is introducing people to hitting hitting a ball at a target and it is again a young audience that is there and i'm speaking from the experience of going to uh, to tournaments all around the world and yes you will have an aging white middle class uh, audience for several of those events if you go to the masters that's what it it, it will be like if you go to the 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 other american majors uspga and us open it will feel that way as well but then you go to the open championship it didn't feel that way at st andrews to me it didn't feel that way at royal port rush it didn't feel that way at royal st george's i know that the, the metrics of how many people were brought to the sport in uh, through the covid period to play the game recreationally that the, the numbers increased there so I'm not seeing a sport that's in that's in decline, and I'm also seeing a sport that has attracted two billion dollars worth of investment from from Live as well, um, and that's come in there, and that has brought a, a, a young audience as well. So I, you know, I I don't think it's fair necessarily to 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 level the accusation of the people who have been running the sport of being asleep at the wheel because the number of times that I received communications from them saying, we've got this Grow the Game initiative, that Grow the Game initiative, we're doing this, we're doing that, we're doing this, we're doing that. It is relentless. Um, and, you know, they are aware, they're aware of it. And a stated aim of the RNA is to have the sport healthy and growing in 50 years from now. That is their oh, primary that, that objective. That makes me really happy then. If the RNA say it, we're, we're happy. All good. The, well, the, the well, bottom no, line. No, no the, I'm not the, saying that. I'm not saying that though. I'm, what I'm saying is that that is their stated aim. That is what they're sitting around the table. Now we can argue about whether they're doing it well or not, but that's what they're trying to do. It's not going to happen, Ian. And like you, 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 you use the majors. I think everybody concedes that the big eventers in sport is a different thing. What what I'm talking about is the the week in week out fair that you're putting on TV, especially in the European tour, which is just really mediocre with no-name players uh, on a no-name leaderboard and, and everybody um, rushing off to find a better... How can you think that the European tour has got any future when, you know, you see the leaderboards that are there week in, week out? Well, um I've just come back from from Dubai, where John Rahm, Matt Fitzpatrick, Tommy Fleetwood, uh, and Rory McIlroy were 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 on the leaderboard of the, the season-ending tournament. The week before, Tommy Fleetwood won with with great uh, a, a hugely emotional victory in South Africa. We had Oliver Wilson uh, breaking his duck after going through all kinds of mental torment um through through his career this year we had bob mcintyre winning in italy this is just off the, the the top of off the top of my head um and every week you know i look at it and think well do you know what that that was good that was interesting that was that was worthwhile sport listen the you know it the sport has has its has its various leagues within it but you look at the um you look at the PGA Tour at the top, and when the the leading players are all playing, we've had some phenomenal tournaments on there this year. Um, you know, with with really great storylines. Um, so, and and it's it's born out of a you know a, a pyramid and a meritocracy that gives it that gives those results substance, and and it's easy for people within the sport who watch it week in, week out to go, oh, 72 holes of golf is boring and it's unimaginative and it's this and it's that. But the fact of the matter is that it starts on a Thursday and it finishes on a Sunday afternoon. And the person who wins it at the end of it has gone through that journey. And that's why it really means something on the Sunday afternoon. Yeah, Ian, um, I'm I'm very much in your camp. Roger and I have gone backwards and forwards with this um for for years now it seems you know and and i i take his points and you know when westy came on 
He made some great points that really got me thinking about about the predicament the European Tour finds itself in now, given the you know tie up with the PGA Tour and the pressure, and, and all this has stemmed obviously from the arrival on the scene of of Live Golf, and it's been it's been a real um, it's been a real uh, tumultuous year for golf in in every way conceivable since Live arrived. So you know, as you covered that arrival of Live, what were your thoughts on on the way they approached? Um, their kind of entry into golf, the way they uh, based it all around how much money was getting paid. You know, I made this point to Westy that, that, that if it had been me, I would have not talked all about the money. I would have talked about we're going to get the best players in the world playing on the best courses in the world because I think as soon as you make it about how many hundreds of millions everyone's getting paid, you just turn people off. But but what, what was your reaction to Liv's arrival and how have you seen that debate mature over the last sort of six or eight months? Well, the, the two live events I've been to, uh, the first one was was the Centurion Club in June, their very first event. Um, and the second one was the team event in Miami at the end. And they both in common had fantastic staging, a really uh, positive young vibe uh, amongst the, the people there. Um, um, they, they've, they've got a, their, their own sort of television kind of coverage the stream the streaming of it the one bit that kind of let it down for me was the golf um because the field is made up of uh players who've had their best days apart from cameron smith and Joachim neiman as far as i can see and young hopefuls who have yet to 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 really you know make make it through but if you look at you know, no disrespect to Lee Westwood, but he's in the same camp as Sergio Garcia and Ian Poulter. And I can fully understand why they've gone there. It's a much more lucrative way of spending that period before you you go into the, the seniors. And the number of the golfers who have mentioned that it's an easier life, it's 54 holes, it's only 48 men, it's, shot, it's shotgun starts, it only takes five hours. But actually, if you take away the money that they're playing for, what do you sell it on? You know, all the other players are, are in apparent decline. Um, so there was a match in the team event that was Cameron Smith against Phil Mickelson, and Mickelson pushed um, Cam Smith all the way to the end, and that was that was kind of interesting, but. You know, compare, comparing that to um, to a, a, a full field PGA Tour event or or a European Tour event, and the and the sporting integrity that they inherently have, I'm I'm afraid for me just didn't do it for me. You know, in terms of of of, of watching it. So the next interesting thing is that they're playing for fantastic sums of money. Well, most of them have already signed deals that make them so rich that actually what they win that week is not going to change their lives. So at what point do we discover the glory of this? Where is the sporting glory in it other than a, a, a money-making exercise? And I think that's their, their biggest challenge. And again, I go back to, to, to what I said initially, the staging of it, the way that it's being being put out there, and the eyeballs that it's it's getting on the course, that's that's great, and it, they do it extremely well. And I've been blown away with how well they did that. But you know, watching Charles Schwartzel win on the fi- on the final day at Centurion, honestly, I you know I just couldn't wait for it to finish and I could go home because there was nothing there to get excited about. And the other thing I would say is that they because of the shotgun format, they play in three balls, which means that the rounds take five hours. So any notion that this is some kind of 2020 version of the game that is, you know, wham, bam, and it's all done is nonsense. It's still five hours that you've got to spend to watch to watch the final round. And that is my biggest bugbear. And I banged on Sir Giles about this when he was doing the WGC in Shanghai. Just get them out in two balls at least because you're going to get round in three and a half hours. And then we might, and it's got momentum because the rest is just too stodgy. And, and they're as guilty as everybody else 
if they're sending them out in final rounds in three balls, which is just, you know, another observation. Ian, it's interesting for me, sort of sitting, I, you've got Grant on one side, Roger on the other, and I sort of float between the two, depending on what day of the week it is. But <laughs> it's, it's, it's interesting to me. We had um, Barry Hearn um, on the show about six months ago, I think it was, five, six months ago, a man who obviously has brought darts and snooker um, to the world and used what two are fairly um, slow-moving sports, to be fair to say, and completely electrified them by the use of um, creating personalities and characters within matchroom sports within his stable. Would you say that where perhaps Liv have missed an opportunity is they've they've signed up some huge players, and I notice there are some other players who may not consider themselves to be at their at their at, still at their peak. I would have thought the DJ can still hit a mean ball, Kepka. Um, Bryson, I'm sure, is going to come back. He, he may have to do some chiropractor work just to get his spine realigned. But I, I wonder if they've missed a trick in terms of bringing out the personalities. It's one thing in a kind of vulgarian petrodollar way of just putting out the big wadges of cash. But I wonder, too, of just bringing out the personalities. I've always felt, other than Tiger, that and why McElroy probably does do so well, because he's such a brilliant personality, is that golfers rather hidden its personalities. And Liv had a really heaven-sent opportunity with the format, with the teams, etc., to really bring out the narrative. And I don't think that's particularly worked. What are your views on that? Yeah, I think I think you've I think it's a decent point, uh, Giles, because uh, and I think it's a problem that that golf per se has has um, has struggled with uh, um, in the modern era and ever since players started wearing caps. Um, this, this will sound very very trivial, but you think yeah, and very nice cap you're wearing today, Thank Giles. By, by the way, yeah, very stylish, very stylish. But it's distinctive. Okay, that's the Giles Morgan cap. All these players wear exactly the same headgear that is that they're paid very handsomely to wear. But if you think of what I always, you know, when I fell in love with with the game of golf, it was because of the characters like Seve Ballesteros, Jack Nicklaus, Arnold Palmer, um, Nick Faldo, Nick Price, um, and you just conjure those up in your mind's eyes now, guys. And can you imagine any of them wearing a bog-standard golf cap? Greg Norman, another one. It's the shock of blonde hair. The golden bear, as in um, uh, Jack Jack Nicholas. You know, it might be a a Giles Morgan-type cap for Tom Watson, but they all had, they were all distinctive. You don't think of Seve wearing a hat. You don't, and you could see their eyes and you could see into their personalities. And that's where, and golf is is such an examination of, of personality. And that's why it's so attractive to so many people watching it on the TV. And it was how Peter Alice could convey the magic of the, the, the sport because he could see the personalities there. And so that, you know, that's a bit of a side issue, but it plays to what you're you're oh, saying giles i don't think that is, is a side issue i think it is absolutely fundamental i think you've nailed it mm. golf is an expression we all know whether you play at whatever level it's a psychological test you have the highs and lows and what is interesting about golf is the is the way people bounce back the way that there is drama through 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 18 holes but without knowing the personality without knowing the sense of uh, the, the the fear the, the the sense of excitement the, the we used to talk about tiger eyes didn't we when he was absolutely on his game you could see what was going on it's the drama of sport that so many sports marketers fail to grasp you're not really about the endeavor it's about the human beings and how they are responding to it which is lies at absolutely the heart of it and i implore um, both well, all of the governing bodies of the sport, but particularly the mm. PGA Tour, which includes the DP World Tour, I guess now, and also the uh, the Live guys, is think about the personality because that's what if you can make a reality television show with pro, um, politicians, failed DJs, ex you know culture club people, and they're in the jungle eating um, 
scorpions and snakes and it's primetime television, it may not be much more than the fact that one is getting a witness of personalities in different situations. That's what sport does. And this is where what we're going to see, I think, from February onwards could be very significant for golf with the Netflix series that has been put together on the PGA Tour in in the last year. And I know uh, Matt Fitzpatrick is going to is likely to figure pretty prominently in in that among other players. And as this whole you know sideshow of of live and every, all the controversy that has happened in in golf, I believe the same thing's happening in in tennis as well in terms of Netflix. And we know how well it has done for for motor racing because you never get to see see the drivers' faces either. Um, and the Netflix Drive to Survive series there has been a trailblazer, which now, you know, we're, we're looking, golf is looking to cash in on. And I think that will be, I think that's a, a, a significant move. And I think, it, you know, I can't wait to see it. Ian, just, we, we also have a, a sponsor for this podcast, Sports Digital, who are involved in all things very technological. They make presentations for the sports industry that literally sing off the page, even though they sing off the screen. Um, so technology and golf have always gone um, hand in hand. You've had things like um, Shot Tracer, you've had you've seen in the broadcasts and also in the amateur level, more and more technology. Do you think that the game at the professional level I'm talking about can harness in the way that tennis did, a, a former sport of yours with Hawkeye, where it became part and parcel of, of the sport? Do you think technology has a big role to help to, to, to Roger's point about trying to bring the youth in and the younger generation to create a more virtual um, experience to to bring it to life, very much so. And I think it, I think it's happening. Um, you can't if you, if you think uh, I'm going to say five years ago when you watched golf on the television, you didn't. You might occasionally see a flight tracker that would show you the, the shape of a shot. Now it's routine. Now it's in it's every shot that that you see. You you get the 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 height of the shot, the how much it's moved through the air, the club head speed, the ball speed, and all of those things are are, are, are really fundamental to to a young audience. You go to the driving range, and you've got your own flight tracker there, and people love all that kind of thing, and that does bring young people in. And that's that's this is what you know. I I, I take what Roger was saying before but i think it was you know ignoring the fact that these kind of um innovations are happening and have been happening and are helping the game going forward to attract a a modern audience so um yeah i think it's it's fundamental to it um my wife worked as a volunteer at the open this year for the first time they had like a shot tracking system at the open championship and she was there with the ipad putting the information in um and you can then get that on on your app which is available to the to the crowd as they're sitting with their phone with wi-fi in the grandstand so again you know that modernizing process has been going on um and you know and, and we've just taken it for granted really um and i think it it will just continue more and more um you know it's a sport that lends itself to that kind of technology Fascinating. Ian, it's been a wonderful hour. Thank you so much for, for coming and doing this. We, we've covered a lot of ground. And, you know, I think this this debate um, in golf in particular uh, is going to be raging for quite some time now. I, I'm, I'm, I've, my, my opinions on the live thing are exactly the same as you. You know, I watched some of that first um, uh, tournament at the Centurion Club. And, and I just, like you, I, I think I've lasted five or six minutes watching it. I saw, I saw Mickelson hit a shot and there was just nothing behind his eyes. He was just there because he was getting a big check. And there was... And not playing for anything, and, and and what you said about where's the glory—that's exactly how I feel about it. Um, the, the debate is interesting because I do think that we talk about what well, we all talk about top golf as a way of embracing. I think they've done an amazing job at getting kids to play in a social setting, which is aim the ball at a target and get the feeling of what it feels like to hit an eight iron straight down the middle, and it's a good feeling. And I do think there's a lot of technology coming through the sport that will hopefully, hopefully engage youngsters to play in the way that we saw even over over COVID. I fundamentally, the game of golf is a fun thing to do. I do also think, though, it needs to um, really think about uh, time, 
because clearly people are time poor and much more distracted. And that's where a lot of sports, whether it's 2020, whether it's just different formats. My, my, my son, who's now 18, he really only plays 2020 cricket. That's what they play at school. It's changed. It's, it's following the, the professionals. I'm not as dark on, on, on the future of golfers as Rog, but he certainly makes the point that if the audience is very, very ageing, then something needs to happen to bring in the younger audience. Now, what has been interesting as well, and this is from Pure Data, is when Augusta um, commissioned some research last year about their global television audience, um, but through their app rather than through TV ratings. The average age of golfer was 15 years, or a fan, was 15 years younger than the television data. Now, that is interesting... Because it, it that answers your point that if you're if you're using the data of the television armchair audience, it presupposes that you're sitting in an armchair during the day, maybe not able to walk as far, whilst other people may be out doing other things. On a mobile app, uh, a game that is engaged, where people are watching it through mobile device, through different ways, if the game gets it right, then they've got a, a shot at, at bringing it down a level. My question is and this is where I sort of go back into Roger's camp a bit, is is golf doing enough to engage that young audience to keep them aligned? And I don't know the answer. I agree with you that uh, um, people like the USGA, Mike Wan and Martin Slumbers at the RNA are, are pioneers. They're very, they are good um, rights holders and these guys get it. The trouble is that the professional tours are actually more worried about their players because they have to be because that's their they're the union of their of their sport which really means about making as much money for individual people rather than development of the sport and i think that you will see that if golf is to have any kind of rosy future and i hope it does i think we all would um everybody here plays golf i just play it worse than all of you um is that it's going to be the rna and the usga who lead for the actual participation and to um, inspire young people to play and then showcase it through the majors that they have in order to take the game forward into the 21st century. Yeah, it's a fascinating conversation and um, I don't think it's uh, it's anywhere near to being done. So, Ian, thank you so much for, for taking this time out of your day to come and discuss it with us. It's, um, it's such a great topic and we really appreciate your, your insight. No problem. So I feel like I've been like a bit of a spokesman for for golf, which I, I don't really, I don't, I don't really feel very qualified to to do. But I just, you know, I'm just speaking as I uh, as I find find the sport, and it's it's by no means perfect, um, but I don't think it's as broken as sometimes it's portrayed. Fantastic. Well, Ian, thank you so much for coming on. No, it's a pleasure. Great, great to chat with you. Thank you, Ian. Cheers, Roger. Cheers, Ian. Bye bye. Cheers. Well, folks, it's just, uh, it is a discussion that is going to run and run and run. It's like the mousetrap. It's, it's, uh, I think we're in for an awful long rope at this. What do you think? Well, I I think that, um, one, that the conversation is not over, and I suspect that um, we'll be talking about this for, for months and months to come because I do think there'll be a, I do think the PGA Tour are going to be sitting in their very large bunker in Ponte Vedra with their very big new building um, with a lot of money in it, trying to figure out what to do. I, I think that they are aware that um, the torpedo in the water was a lot deadlier than they realised. And I think that that is going to energise them to see that the disruption in the game will galvanise some sensible decisions so hopefully that any um, inertia will will have been cancelled but we don't know what that looks like i think that um live will spend the next two to three months i hope really thinking about what it is they're doing and what they're trying to do better it's not like they don't have the dollars to do it better but they need to improve the product because the product is um it's good but it's not great it's not that compelling um, I think that the women's game is going to be the one to watch because we've talked about that a lot um, and talk about low-hanging fruit and talk about particularly the opportunity to start playing mixed formats and to start to really shake the game up. All of that is talked about. At the moment, it's all in PowerPoint presentations and it's uh, not released in press releases that I've yet seen. And I'm looking forward to that because I hope... Um, like I know you do too as well, Rog, is ultimately I would love to see golf flourish. 
I really would. It's a wonderful, wonderful game. There is no better examination of the human mind than to play golf, uh, which makes me a lunatic. <laughs> no, you're right. Um, probably a little bit sharper than I should have been. But honestly, I really do believe, and I know I'm not alone on this, I really do believe that sport just doesn't get it. It, it talks about the product, the product, the product. Nobody talks about product market fit. Nobody. And you can't talk about the product and the glory of the product. It means nothing. It's the same in startup worlds. You go, you see decks of every somebody that's built a spaceship that does this wonderful thing, that wonderful thing. And they say, isn't my product wonderful? And you say, what problems it's solving? And they collapse. They collapse. They haven't understood what that product is for. And I would like to go back, as you mentioned, to the Barry Hearn podcast and it said, why does golf need to exist for the mass markets of uh, blue collar uh, population where the money is? It needs to get out of this idea that it's some little niche worthy middle class sport that will always have a future. Its market isn't big enough to sustain that the way the entertainment industry is today. And I, I feel really antipathetic when I have to make these points, but it just doesn't sink in. And like Grant, you know, like in your world, when they say, who could have seen inflation coming? It was really never on the horizon. It's the same you get here. Who could have seen the Super League coming? Who could have seen Live coming? Who could have seen whatever the next thing is in, in terms of that? You could have seen it. You just need to open your eyes and see the winds of change and how products and markets need to fit together well, there we go gentlemen as always a fascinating hour enjoyable conversation and uh, our thanks to you out there for listening to us we appreciate you doing that uh, otherwise as I said before it's the three of us waffling onto each other and that's no fun whatsoever if you don't follow us already you can do that very easily you'll find us on twitter at entertained r that's the word a-r-e you can find me on twitter at t-t-m-y-g-h you can follow me, Giles Morgan, at GilesMorgan71. And myself at RPM Como as in the lake. As in the lake. He's still there. All right, folks. Until next time. Take care. Bye-bye.